Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to one of the authors of Populism, a very short introduction. The book was published by Oxford University Press, and I have the real pleasure today to talk to the uh, one of the authors, Cass Muda. Cass, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. I know that you've been very, very productive. We have the chance to talk about uh, one of your uh, new books, but it relates, I'm sure, to some of the other stuff that you're working on. Uh, before we talk about the book, uh, maybe you can just share a little bit about yourself and also your co-author. Yes, so um, I'm Cosmuda, uh, and I'm a Dutch political scientist. Moved to the U.S. Uh, about ten years ago, and to the University of Georgia five years ago, where I am an associate professor. Um, and I've written the book together with my uh, friend Cristobal Rovira Kaltwasser who is an associate professor at uh, Diego Portales in uh, Santiago in Chile. Wonderful. And and um, the book is, uh, I, I imagine, part of a, I don't know how new the series is, um, but it's a, a series focused on explaining um, important contentious uh, concepts. And populism certainly is one of those. Um, it's such a confusing term because it's it's really used so variously and, and you, you really start the book with that, uh, I wonder if you'd start our conversation by describing a few of the more common and, and contradictory uses of the term uh, that, that, uh, that get to why it's hard to know exactly what someone means when they say populism. Yeah, so in the U.S., traditionally, um, there are two interpretations of, of populism, and one is very specific and goes back to pretty much the first populist movement, the agrarian populist and the People's Party of the mid-19th century to beginning of the 20th century. And that really limits it to mostly an agrarian movement and in many interpretations, kind of a positive movement that had progressive ideals. Um, That is not very useful outside of that specific context. Uh, The other interpretation that's very popular still in the medium and and also particularly among uh, economists is that populism is a kind of redistributive um, politics, which is, because most economists are uh, neoliberal, bad, um, and leads to overspending. In Europe, populism is quite often seen more as uh, demagogy, um, as kind of like promising everything to everyone, um, or to being folksy. And um, by and large, the problem with that interpretation is that the argument that that populists are politicians who speak in simple terms or or who try to act as if they're one of the people or who promise, who over-promise, is is problematic because in today's campaigns, almost everyone does that. Now, you you offer uh, another uh, uh, way to think about populism and, and to clarify uh, and to, to offer something that is slightly more generalizable. Uh, you argue for an ideational approach 
and populism as a as what you describe a thin centered ideology. What do you mean by that exactly? And and how does this uh, clarify some of the important aspects of what populism is and, and also is not? So the ideational approach broader means that populism is first and foremost seen as a set of ideas. Um, and so it is not a way to mobilize. It is not... Um, necessarily about a leadership structure or things like that. Um, but then within that, there are some people who say, well, it's more just a discourse. Um, or, um, and and I, I think that it is more than just a discourse. It, it actually also informs the way that, that these politicians see politics, but it is a relatively limited view on society and on politics, and that's why I call it fin-centered. Fin-centered means that it, it is by and large um, a, 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 an ideology that speaks only to part of the broader program. And in this uh, specific case of populism, it really just looks at society and distinguishes between two groups, which it claims to be uh, homogenous and antagonistic, and that is the pure people on the one hand and the corrupt elite on the other. And it wants politics to be the expression of what it considers the general will of the people. And so let me pick out a few points there. The most important ones are that the two groups are homogenous, which means that all elite are corrupt, and it means that all people are pure. The second uh, important thing, which is sometimes underplayed, is that the distinction is moral. It is between the pure and the corrupt. It's not between the rich and the poor. It's not class. It's not interest. It's morals. And the direct consequence of that is that compromise becomes extremely difficult because when the pure make a compromise with the corrupt, then the pure are corrupted. Um, that all said, it means that they see society as a struggle between those two groups. But when they are actually empowered, that populism itself doesn't tell them necessarily what the best economic system is or whether they should have a welfare state or even whether they should have a presidential or a parliamentary system. Now, now in the U.S., US um, which you talk about, uh, not exclusively, but you, you group both the Tea Party and also Occupy Wall Street together as, as forms of populism. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about what they share and, and also why we continue to see the Tea Party as a part of the political conversation, but not so much Occupy. Well, what they share is that division between the pure people and the corrupt elite. And the Tea Party had, like the corrupt elite, was pretty much the Democrats and the rhinos, the, the Republicans in name only. Um, and it, it defended like the American people who allegedly don't want big government and socialism and those kind of things. Occupy Wall Street spoke about the 99% versus the 1%. Um, and so two groups in which the 99% was homogenous and was also kind of pure, whereas the 1% was corrupt. They weren't just rich, but they, they were in a sense evil and they 
conspired against the people. Um, and when you look actually at um, particularly grassroots Tea Party, which I think many liberals have always kind of um, ignored or minimized and, and have always seen um, the Tea Party as mainly uh, an astroturf phenomenon run by Americans for prosperity and those kind of things. But when you actually went to the meetings, and I went to various meetings in, in Indiana, for example, you would see quite a lot of similar rhetoric to Occupy Wall Street, which I also visited. Um, and it was much more um, populist, and it was much more about the regular people. Now, why do we still talk about <coughs> the Tea Party and not about Occupy Wall Street? I mean, first of all, I think we talk way too little about the Tea Party, <coughs> because I think the Tea Party was crucial to understanding the rise of Trump. But the Tea Party actually still exists in some form at the local and state level. Occupy Wall Street has just completely imploded. Um, a, a few years back, I was at Occupy Radio, um, which is in Eugene, Oregon, and I, I asked uh, the person who runs it, like, so are, are you the official radio station? And he said, yeah, I, I by and large just got the rights to that because no one does anything with it anymore. Um, and that has a lot to do with infrastructure. It has to do with choices about whether you're going to create a real organization or not. Um, but the sad part of it is that Occupy Wall Street has left very little, in, I would say, organizational legacy. Now, this also relates to, to leadership and, and actually having power. And um, as you describe, uh, populism in Europe and elsewhere has taken on different forms, but, but has some peculiar similarities. And, and for example, as you note in the book, um, you want to uh, wonder why did po populist leaders seem to buy soccer teams at such a high rate? Um, this is this is um, both humorous, but also uh, says something. Uh, is that is that true? Um, and, and does it matter? Is is this simply uh, an artifact of, of populists having money, or uh, populist leaders having money, or is it something else? Does, does it express something interesting about uh, when populists uh, gain power? Yeah, I think so. And the it's not unique to populists. There are also non-populist leaders who. Um, who buy football teams or other very popular sports teams. And I just watched a phenomenal documentary called Forever Pure, which is about the, uh, the Israeli soccer team, um, Beitai Jerusalem, um, which was bought for a while um, by a guy who had no interest whatsoever in football. Um, but he wanted to become the mayor of Jerusalem. And so he thought, if I buy the team, then all the fans of the team will vote for me and, and I will become mayor. And he actually lost the mayor race and then pretty much sold the team. Um, but for populists, particularly very rich populists, like it is a little bit more difficult to share, to kind of argue that you're a, a man of the people. Um, so if you have someone like Silvio Berlusconi, who was one of the richest men in Italy, who lived in opulence, um, then the connection between his life and, and that of the people um, could be a bit more difficult to sell. But he became the owner of AC Milan, which is one of the biggest uh, soccer teams. And that made him a soccer man. And given that soccer is by far the most popular sport in Italy, 
that kind of made him much more one of the one of the people. And so in that sense, um, soccer in most countries is by far the most popular sport. It's also a sport not really associated so strongly with class. Um, and so it, it, it is not just working class. It's really the sports of the people. Now, Donald Trump also owned a football team, a U.S. football team for a while as well. Uh, your book precedes his presidency by a little. It's, it sort of seems, uh, at least in its writing. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about how he fits into your understanding of populism. Uh, in which ways is he a conventional populist leader or is he unconventional in some ways? Yeah, I think uh, the most of the pushback we have gotten so far about the book is that we talk too little about Brexit and about Trump. And in part, I think that that critique reflects a little bit more the parochialism of um, Americans and American scholars who are only interested in the rest of the world if you can link it to the U.S. Um, But it's also understandable. Now, our book doesn't precede the rise of Donald Trump, but I would argue it precedes the transformation of Trump into a populist political actor. What I mean by that is that in the, I would say, roughly the first year of his campaign, Trump did not campaign as a populist. I sat through a couple of his speeches at the really beginning, where he really only talked about himself, and at times a little bit the wall. And so he would go on these rants about how successful he was as a business and how he just sold like an apartment for several million to the Chinese. Um, And then pretty much always said, like, I am the only one who can fix this. Um, He wasn't the voice of the people. And that changed pretty much um, when Steve Bannon took over his campaign mid-2016. And then you saw a transformation. Trump was increasingly describing his campaign as a movement. Um, and it, I think the, I mean, the, the, the epic inaugural speech was the pinnacle of that populist moment. Speech, of course, written by, by Stephen Miller uh, in part and by, by uh, Steve Bannon, um, where by and large he just said, um, by electing, having elected me as president, you have put the people in the White House. Um, And so I think that Donald Trump is not a populist at heart. Um, He has made that very clear in pretty much everything he has said. Um, But he has made his movement and his presidency into into a populist movement. The question is, how long will that remain now that Steve Bannon is out? He is increasingly moving to... um, kind of a more hardcore Republican kind of deregulation um, part. It, it will be more difficult to square, but over the last year, he has still campaigned mostly as a populist. Now, that does raise a, a final part here that we haven't talked much about, which is populism related to political parties. Um, this is particularly important uh, when we look at Europe and and outside of the United States, um, how do populists fit themselves into political parties, given part of the populist um, uh, symbolism is about uh, outsiderness and and not having power and taking power? What what happens when populists become associated with political parties? Well, in um, in Europe, 
almost every country has a multi-party system, which means that there are at least four or five parties around. And uh, being a political party is not necessarily being an insider, um, particularly populist radical right parties like Front National of Marine Le Pen um, in France have been outsider parties. They've never been in government. And, and so it is not that problematic to be associated with a party because that is just how politics is done. What tends to be more challenging is when populists come to power. And there has been for quite a while this kind of received wisdom that populism is useful to get into power, but it becomes a problem once you're in power. And to a certain extent, that makes sense, right? Because that would mean that you become the elite. But we have more than enough examples that show that if you are a really crafty populist, you can still be in power and argue that there is still an elite out there that is trying to frustrate you. Now think, for example, about what um, Donald Trump is doing at the moment, where he's saying, like, I'm I'm trying to do what the people want, right? But there is um, there is the courts that are against me and there are the media that are against me. And in the broader field like of Trump supporters, they're talking about the deep state that is frustrating, like it's working against them. And so there's still this shadowy corrupt elite. The problem is how long can you maintain this? Because Let's assume that you're in power for 10 years and you still argue that by and large you can't get anything done because of the strong, shady elite. I assume most voters are at that point in time starting to look for someone who is also populist, but more effective. Now, the final thing that I wanted to talk about is the issue of, of gender, uh, which, which comes up in an interesting way in the book. Uh, we've talked about a number of, of male uh, populist leaders, um, and, and also, also masculinity as a part of populism. Um, uh, would you talk a little bit about that dimension of populism? Uh, because there are also example of, of women populist leaders, but it doesn't fit into, I think, some of the ways that we think about populism. So how do those, how do those two things fit together? Yeah, I really, uh, I really think that the gender dimension of um, of populism still needs a lot of work. Like um, in the related field of kind of the radical right, we have a little bit more on on it, but it's actually more interesting for populism because populism is not only on the right, um, and um, particularly in Latin America, um, when we think about populists, we think almost exclusively about men and very much about masculinity. Um, but intrinsically, there's nothing gendered about populism because, again, it's such a thin ideology. Um, how, and as a consequence, the connection between populism and gender goes mostly through the culture. And what that means is that the culture, to a large extent, um, sets the boundaries of what of what a woman can be. And so in traditional cultures, right, as we see, for example, in Southeast Asia, uh, women can actually be leaders, can be presidents, but they have to be kind of the wife of or the daughter of uh, an important male man. Whereas in Northern Europe, which is a, has a 
as equal and emancipated a culture as you can have, women don't have to abide by these kind of rules. Now, where gender plays uh, an interesting role is how populist leaders, female populist leaders, of which there are quite a lot, how they use it. And so take, for example, Sarah Palin, who um, I mean, to a certain extent has not been taken serious that much, but there are some interesting aspects to it. She comes up within, as a clearly a populist, supported by the Tea Party, but also within a, a very um, old-fashioned and, and traditional gender role culture of conservatism in the U.S. And so how does she frame herself as like a, a mama grizzly, right? Because the mother is an acceptable part. But what helps her is that in a conservative kind of culture, women are outsiders in politics. And just by, by, by their gender, they're seen as not traditional politicians. And so in more conservative cultures, being a woman actually helps you as a populist because it makes you, by gender, an outsider. Yeah, the, the book is, is so interesting and, and um, I think uh, hits on these issues and I think uh, likely relate to some other things that you're working on. Before we finish, I wonder if you can um, just briefly uh, mention uh, the other book that you have out on, on the right-wing politics. I think that's, that's a recent one. Could you give us a little, little hint of, of that work? Um, yeah, I have a couple of books out. I mean, mostly um, I have about three books out, which are largely collections of um, op-ed pieces and interviews that I've given. One is about the left-wing uh, populist party Syriza in Greece and the role they played in, in the crisis. Um, and one is um, a bit broader. It's on extremism and democracy in Europe, where I speak about far-right politics, populist politics, liberal democracy, um, and, and terrorism and counterterrorism. Um, and then I have, uh, this year, I have a new book uh, out about the far right in the U.S., which, um, which is mostly trying to put it in a more historical perspective um, to argue that Trump is not just some aberration, um, but is actually in line of, a, of pretty much two centuries of, of nativism as well as very closely related to the Tea Party, which was only about 10 years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm now trying to move a little bit away from writing so much about populism, and I'm working on, partly on uh, some work, maybe articles, books, on the transformation of European politics more broadly, um, and, and particularly the link between the rise of populism and the decline of social democracy. Yeah, the, I, I hope you come back uh, with with this work in the future. And uh, until then, the, the current book uh, that Cast has written with Cristobal is Populism, A Very Short Introduction, published by Oxford University Press. Cast, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me here.